This is Nancy Piercy. I'm a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. You're listening to RYM's The Local Youth Worker podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Local Youth Worker. I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Nancy Piercy uh, with us today. We will get to that interview in just a little bit. Um, I did want to let everyone know that we have another giveaway uh, that we're excited about. Um, Baker Books has published Nancy's newest book, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity. We'll be talking about that today, um, but they've generously offered two free books. And so uh, for two of you out there listening, uh, you can win a free copy by simply suggesting a guest for this podcast. Um, You can send a DM on Instagram. You can look up our contact information on our website and message one of the the staff members and just suggest someone that you would like to have on this podcast. Now, there's no guarantees that whoever you suggest that we're able to get, but um, it helps a lot just trying to think of people you want to hear from and potential content for the podcast. So all you need to do is suggest someone and we will enter your name to win a free copy of this book. It's an excellent Excellent book. And again, a big thanks to Baker Books for offering that. Um, If you've been tuning in, uh, I've told you a little bit about the schedule for this podcast. Uh, This will be the last episode for uh, maybe a few weeks. Um, Next week, I'll be traveling to RYM's first summer conference. I mean, we're kicking off summer conference season, which is, is kind of hard to believe, but I will be in Colorado with the rest of the staff and um, a thousand other people. Uh, so we're excited about all the churches that will be joining us. Some of you who listen to this will, will be there and we're excited to see some of you in person and get to interact with you. And the hope is this summer that um, I'll be able to sit down with a few people and, and record some episodes. So just stay tuned. Um, uh, we hope to get some kind of content uh, to you. All right. So that's just a little bit of the housekeeping for this show. Um Dr. Nancy Piercy will be with us today. Many of you know her. Uh, For those who don't, she is the author of several books, uh, Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Total Truth, and then this newest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Uh, You can pre-order this book now. There's a link in the show notes if you want to click on that, but it comes out June 27th. Uh, Dr. Piercy is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She has been quoted in the New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today. She has spoken at Princeton, Stanford, USC, among other places. Uh, She's hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. I'm so glad to have her on the show today. Professor Piercy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to, good to meet you, and I look forward to this conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about this newest book. Um, but first, why don't you just tell our listeners where you live and a little bit about your family? I live in Houston, Texas, and I teach at Houston Christian University. So I, I feel like I'm one of your youth workers. I, I speak to young <laughs> people all the time, um, freshmen and sophomores, so just a little bit older. But I have to tell you, you know, it's a, it's a very similar mindset. And so I really, I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. 
Um, and my family, well, my my kids have grown and gone. I did homeschool my two sons, and um, which was the, wonderful. <laughs> I loved it. And my youngest son got a chance to attend Houston Christian University. So I made him take all my classes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I was still in a sense homeschooling. <laughs> but at at any rate, so yeah, that, that kind of covers the, the family side, I think. Yeah, yeah. And as I said in the, the intro, we're, we're talking about your newest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And, and to remind our listeners that releases June 27th, um, there's actually a link in the show notes where people can go and, and, and pre-order that now. And let me just tell everyone, they need to get the book. This is an excellent book. As I was telling you pre-recording, I've only had it to about a week. I haven't gotten to finish it, but it's a, a great book. And, and early in the book, um, you say that there's a sense in which you've been writing this book your entire life. Uh, why don't you just unpack that for us a little bit and, and why you decided to write this book now? Yes, I do give a personal story at the beginning. And um, and the reason I do is because I grew up with a severely abusive father. And so I had, when I say I was writing this book my whole life, I had to really work out on a personal level what was a healthy, positive, biblical view of masculinity. And I was I was actually uh, being interviewed a few days ago by a Christian psychologist. And he said, I'm glad you put that there because that tells people this is not just an ivory tower exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just an academic, that you have actually personally wrestled with these questions. And and so it, it was a big part, I think, of um, my own spiritual life is and not just sort of growing in doctrine and theology, but also I had to go through a lot of growth in terms of personal healing, psychological and spiritual healing. And you asked me uh, to talk about Labrie. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know from there, which I appreciated just how vulnerable you were to share um, just the, the the family history and then how the Lord eventually, because you, you said you were drawn irresistibly to the feminist movement and then later found your yourself in Switzerland going to Labrie. So just kind of from there with your family to Labrie, I, I'd love to just know how you ended up there. Yes. Yes. Of course I became a raving feminist <laughs> because, <laughs> because I did, you know, come out of childhood thinking men were pretty mm-hmm. evil. Um, but and I also lost my faith along the way. My mm. parents were Scandinavian Lutherans, and I don't know if you know, but ethnic religions are sometimes have they sometimes have less personal commitment because they rely on the ethnicity to hold you. You know, like all Italians are Catholic. And so when I started asking questions in high school, um, I'm attending a public high school. All my textbooks are secular. All my teachers are secular. And I started just asking, how do we know Christianity is true? That was really it. <laughs> my one question. <laughs> and unfortunately, none of the adults in my life could answer that. Hmm. Uh, I mentioned that my dad was abusive. So one day I asked him, you know, why are you a Christian? Just point blank. And he said, works for me. Hmm. <laughs> I thought, That's it. You know, he was a university professor. I wow. thought I might get something more substantial. I talked to a seminary dean also, and all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes, as though it was a psychological phase that I would just mm-hmm. outgrow. And so about halfway through high school, I very intentionally walked away from my Christian upbringing. I decided maybe Christianity just didn't have any answers 
Mm-hmm. And so I went through a, a period of several years of being a very, very much of an agnostic, uh, absorbing a lot of secular ideas, because I realized if there was no God, then there was no purpose to life. There's no meaning to life. We're just on a rock flying through empty space. Mm-hmm. I realized there was no foundation for ethics. It's really just, you know, true for me, true for you. And there was no, there was not even a foundation for knowledge. Uh, the way I thought of it at the time was, if all I have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and space, what makes me think I could have some sort of universal, absolute truth? Ridiculous. That's how I thought about it. Ridiculous. So I didn't have the labels for it, but I had become a total relativist and skeptic. And in my science classes, I became a determinist, which is complex biochemical machines anyway. Hmm. So I had absorbed quite a few secular isms over this over that period and i was reading philosophy i was studying philosophy because i thought well if i can't get any adults to talk about these things with me you know maybe <laughs> maybe uh, that's the job of these philosophers right <laughs> to ask questions like what is truth and how do we know it and so i ended up as you mentioned in europe we had lived in europe when i was a child and so i had gone back and so i kind of stumbled across the ministry of francis schaefer at which is called Libri. It's uh, the French word meaning the shelter. And Francis Schaeffer was known for an, doing an apologetics ministry. And, and I was stunned. I had no idea Christianity could be supported by good reasons and arguments and evidence. Mm-hmm. And, and that they were, the staff at Libri were as acquainted with the secular worldviews as I was. You know, the ones that I was, I had never encountered Christians who could engage with the secular worldviews that I had absorbed oh. by that time. And so it was through my stay at Libri that I became a Christian. But on staff at Libri, there was also a psychiatric social worker. And she was there because she realized a lot of people have not only intellectual barriers, but they have emotional barriers Hmm. that they need to deal with. And especially Christian kids, because a lot of times their doubts arise out of conflicts with their parents. You know, the classic being the missionary kid and the pastor's kid. (laughs) <laughs> this so, uh, social worker was a missionary kid. Um, and so she helped me to see that as, as I was becoming a Christian, I was also working through the trauma from my childhood. Mm. I had tried to leave it all behind. <laughs> when I left home, I said, okay, I'm wiping the slate clean and I'm going to recreate myself from scratch. Well, it turns out you can't do that. Mm. <laughs> you you actually cannot. You she helped me, um, the psychiatric social worker's name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. So <laughs> Birdie helped me realize I had to really work through to an experiential sense of God's love, that God's mm-hmm. love would heal all those broken parts of my heart, that God's, that God's love has power. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't experienced it, you know, my secular friends, you know, but but really being loved has the impact of really healing the inner self. And so because of that time at Labrie, I not only became a Christian, but also embarked on a long um, a long journey of spiritual and emotional healing. Hmm. Now that, that's phenomenal. And, and before we, we get off this, I'd love for you just, if you have a story about Francis Schaeffer, as you, as you mentioned, and when you when you hear his name, what what's a memory or something that that comes to mind that you could just share about him? Well, first of all, um, his ministry was was unique because people came and actually lived in his home, 
And so he wasn't just a talking head who could Mm. fly into a conference and sound impressive, (laughs) (laughs) but you don't know what he's really like with his family, you know, with Mm. his staff and so on. We saw him day in and day out. So we knew he was authentic. Mm. And that's the main word I would use to describe Schaefer. He was authentic. People, um, People wondered how he ended up in Switzerland. Well, after World War II, a Child Evangelism Fellowship sent him over to Europe to assess uh, the the state of the churches after the World War. And he uh, came back, gave his report, and they said, we think you should go. (laughs) (laughs) So he did. That's how he ended up in Europe and having a ministry in Europe. And how it became Labrie, at first it was more of a, um, a more standard evangelistic ministry. But as his daughters got old enough to go to the university, um, they began to talk to their friends. And naturally, they would talk about God and their friends would ask them questions. And they'd say, you ought to talk to my dad. <laughs> He's really good with those kind of questions. <laughs> and so they would take the little Swiss train up the mountain you because know, they were in a high inaccessible village in the Swiss mm. Alps. And because it was so inaccessible, people would just spend the night. They'd stay the whole weekend. You know, they'd sleep on the floor and the couches and so on. And then the next week they would tell their friends and a new group of students would come up. And then a next next week, another group of students would come up. And so it sort of organically grew into a place where people would come and stay for a period of time and actually live in a Christian home. And that's how it grew too. People who... Uh, converted through Libri would say we'd we'd like to be part of your ministry, and they would buy the chalet down the down the street. By the way, everyone lives in a chalet there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a luxury home, but that's just <laughs> the kind of homes they live in in the Swiss Alps. Mm. <laughs> and so they'd buy the chalet down the street and open their home. And so Libri was just a smattering of of little homes in this Swiss village, and. It grew, like I said, organically into something where people would stay for a period of time. And I think that's what made it more unique. People would say, and I would say this myself too, what persuaded us of that Christianity was true, what brought about the conversion experience was was not only the apologetics, though that was important, but it was also seeing a quality of love that we had not seen back in our churches Mm. back home. You know, mm. the quality of the community at Libri was just amazing. Mm. And Francis Schaeffer actually wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian, where he said, love is the final apologetic. And he lived it. That's exactly what many people said when they went to Libri. They said the love that they witnessed, the Christian community that they witnessed, was equally part of their conversion We will get back to the remainder of my interview with Dr. Piercy in just a minute. I wanted to remind our listeners about RYM's new teen devotional entitled Social Media Pressure, Finding Peace Alongside Jesus. Uh, I'm excited to let everyone know that it is 30% off at New Growth Press if you use the code RYM30. This will only last for a limited time. They're extending it through July. And so I want to encourage everyone to go check this out at newgrowthpress.com. Again, at checkout, if you use the code RYM30, you get this for 30% off. It's been so encouraging to hear how people are utilizing this. Obviously, individuals utilizing this on their own, but hearing youth workers using this for group, uh, small group studies. And so I want to point people to that. Again, 30% off for a limited time. 
for now, here's the rest of the interview with Dr. Piercy. Um, again, the title, The Toxic War on Masculinity. I love that title. And you're dealing with toxic masculinity. And I think it could be helpful maybe just define that for us or just kind of help us know where did the idea of toxic masculinity come from? Well, you know, at the beginning of the book, I, I talk about a sociological study that found that there's two scripts for masculinity that is sort of out there. And, and it might be a good good to start there. And the reason I put it at the beginning of the book, by the way, there's a reason for that. Um, <laughs> this has proven to be the most controversial book I've ever written, hmm. which surprised me. I really thought Love Thy Body. That's would what be. I was going to say. I mean, exactly. they'd, they'd both be in competition, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right, because Love Thy Body deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. And what I found, though, is that at least in the Christian world, this has been more controversial. Like, for example, I, I've taught it to my classes and done reading groups to sort of rub off the rough edges, and they would tell their friends and family about it. And invariably, the first question would be, whose side is she on? Hmm. You know, with, with that tone, you know, whose side hmm. is she on? You know, she's some raving feminist out to bash men, or is she an angry reactionary? And so I found that I had to disarm that um, in, in my first chapter. I had to kind of help people see you don't have to be either, you know, straight for, you know, wholesale for or against. There are two scripts out there. And this was done by a sociologist who's very well known in his field. And so he gets invited to speak all around the world. And he decided to turn this into a little experiment. And he would ask young men two questions you know, from Australia to Germany to Brazil, he would ask them two questions. The first question was, what, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? Well, people had no problem answering that. Everywhere, the young men would say, and I'll give you the exact words, honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologists would ask, well, where'd you get that? And they say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Or in the West, they would often say, it's our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, what if I said to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh, no, that is completely different. Hmm. And let me read you their response to that. It means be tough, strong never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. Mm. In other words, the second one is what we often talk about in terms of being toxic. When people think of toxicity, they think of that the real man, quote unquote, which is uh, geared towards dominance and entitlement and get rich, get laid. Mm. So I, I found it very helpful with my audience's to in, in my classroom to be able to say there's two scripts for masculinity. And the second one, the real man is what we often hear called toxic masculinity. But men don't respond very well to being called toxic. <laughs> Nobody would. And so what this does is it gives us a better strategy. What we can do is say, how can we look for ways to support the ideal of the good man that men intrinsically hold? In other words, they're made in God's image. Right. They do know what the good man is. And so a, a better strategy is to say, how can we support, affirm, you know, help men live out 
the good man ideal that that they all actually have you know universally men do know what it means to be a good man mm-hmm. so that i think that's the challenge before us is how do we affirm them in being the good man oh yeah and i thought that was so helpful like you said in the introduction to talk about the good man versus the real man just some some helpful ways to to think through um i think you you said this the software versus the virus that's in, infected the the narrative um and you also talk about you know the me too movement as well as the church too movement and obviously some of the the controversy you were talking about <laughs> um uh, this being the most contro- most controversial book, um, just maybe talk to us a little bit about both of these movements and w- what did they get right in some ways and then what did they get wrong? Maybe referring back to how people asked you, which side are you on? Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why I, I rewrote chapter one multiple times <laughs> to, because when people got past that and into the content of the book, they usually said, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I didn't mm-hmm. know this. You know, they, they liked the book, but I often had to get over that initial barrier. And so in chapter one, I have to kind of say, I hear you, <laughs> you know, to both sides. You know, so I had to say, I hear you to the people who are concerned about toxicity, you know, toxic behavior in men. You you have to acknowledge the Me Too movement. You have to acknowledge the Church Too movement. By the way, I find that not everybody has heard that term, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, a kind of a mirror movement. It talks about um, uh, sexual abuse in, uh, in, in the churches. And so, and but I also had to help people to recognize men do have a problem. Um, I, I got people saying, well, why should we care about men? They end up in the leadership positions anyway. Well, yeah, maybe 10%. <laughs> mm-hmm. But on average, men are doing worse today than they were in the past. At all levels of education, boys are falling behind from kindergarten to college. I mean, we're dealing with that at Houston Christian University. We're having to figure out how do we attract more male students. Most universities now are roughly 60-40, 60% women. Uh, more women go to graduate school. More women go to professional schools like uh, law and medicine. So books are coming out with titles like, you know, The Problem with Boys, you know, and the Why Are Boys Failing? And so on. And even as adults, men are falling behind today. Um, most people don't realize that men actually do. Uh, the su- suicide rate has gone up. They do tend to be more addicted to drugs and alcohol. They do end, end up behind bars. I used to work for Prison Fellowship, which is an international prison ministry. And we knew some 90% of those who are behind bars are male. And, and this was a, a surprise as well. Men's employment level has gone down. It is now at depression era levels. It doesn't show up in the statistics because they're not looking for work anymore. So it took researchers digging behind the statistics and finding that work, the levels of employment are at depression era levels. And men's life expectancy is going down. Women's has stayed the same. Hmm. So it's not a general trend. It's men's life expectancy that's gone down. There's a magazine called The New Scientist that said the major demographic now for early death is being male. <laughs> so so I, I want to help people realize that, yes, we've got movements like Me Too and Church Too, but we also need to pay attention to the fact that men are in trouble today. And we need to start thinking about how we can minister better to our boys and our men. Hmm. Yeah, some of those stats were just 
fascinating. I mean, sobering and, and shocking because, you know, there's a there's a narrative that is out there. And I think one of the interesting things you point out is dealing with Christian men. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you talk about nominal Christian men versus committed Christian men. And I'd love for you to, to talk about that just a, a little bit and just some of your findings there. Yeah. So when people ask me why I wrote the book, I often start with um, the fact that it's become morally acceptable to attack men with a great deal of hostility. Um, I mean, uh, in ge- in general, in the culture, I, I remember I, one day I decided to write this book when I read an article in the Washington Post that was titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And I thought, what? <laughs> in a mainstream publication, a uh, Huffington Post editor said, uh, used a, tag, a hashtag, kill all men. You can buy t-shirts that say so many men, so little ammunition. (laughs) And there are books with titles like I hate men and no good men and a men necessary. So this is why I said, okay, we've got to ask, where is this coming from? But to focus more on Christian men, as you just asked, that was easy to find too, by the way. Even in the Christian world, there are is a lot of hostility being expressed against masculinity. And let me just read you a few quotes so you hear it in their own words. This is one I found online. Um, go online. They're easy to find. Conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. The theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. It's no secret, and this is from a Christian publication, it's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. The problem with these accusations is that they ignore the data from the social sciences. And the the sociologists were looking at these charges and saying, well, where's the evidence? You're not citing any evidence. So they went and did the studies. Hmm. And sociologists and psychologists um, over the past couple of decades have been doing studies. And what they found is that these accusations are completely false. They have found that men who are truly committed, you know, truly authentic in their faith, who attend church regularly, are actually the most loving fathers and the most engaged husbands. So in terms of uh, husbands, by the way, they do interview the wives separately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so what they're really reporting is that the wives say, uh, they're the most likely to report being happy with their husband's expressions of love and appreciation. Evangelical men are the most engaged fathers in terms of both shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time and enforcing bedtime. Evangelicals have the lowest rate of divorce of any major group in America. And the real surprise they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any major group in America. Hmm. So my, my go-to sociologist, the one I quote the most, um, is one who did the largest study. His name is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And he wrote an article for the New York Times in which he said, and I'll give you another quote, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America, they're looking at the wives, of course, because the assumption is, any sort of authority or headship in the home leads to abusive, chauvinistic patriarchs. (laughs) Mm. 
it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. I was astonished that the New York Times was willing to print that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find is most Christians don't know it either. And mm-hmm. uh, when I speak at conferences at Christian schools, seminaries, universities, I give these stats and that people's jaws drop because <laughs> they don't know that they're doing so well. And and uh, Wilcox, Brad Wilcox, uh, turns to his secular colleagues and says, "You you um, academics," he says, "you need to cast aside your prejudices." Mm. <laughs> against um, religious conservatives and against evangelicals in particular. He says, conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So, by the way, he noticed he focuses on Protestant. He's a Catholic. Hmm. Brad Wilcox himself is a Catholic. So in a sense, he doesn't have a dog in this fight. You know, You can't accuse him of going out of his way to try to prove that Protestant men were doing better. It just, yeah. that's just what the data showed. Wow. Yeah, that was so interesting. And like you said, kind of separating nominal Christians versus committed Christians is so key in that research and is often being misunderstood. Oh, yeah, yeah. We didn't get to the nominal, so let's do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah, because, because everyone I talked to, this is the first pushback I always get. Everyone says, well, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? So the researchers went back to the data and they divided out the authentically committed Christian men from nominal Christian men. By the way, my students do not even know what nominal means. So you have to explain. That means in name only. Hmm. N-O-M is Latin for name. So these are men who, in a survey like this, might might check the Baptist box, for example, um, but who actually attend church rarely, if at all. And they do test out shockingly differently. They do Mm -hmm. test out by the negative stereotypes. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They are the least engaged with their children. They have the highest rates of divorce, higher than secular men. And the they the real shocker, they have the highest rates of domestic violence of any group in America, higher hmm. than secular men. So this is stunning. And, and you can see why the statistics are skewed. If you take the committed men who are better than secular men and you take the nominals who are worse than secular men, and if you just do a, a study on evangelicals and put them to the two together, you're not going to get a correct you get get skewed statistics. And so this is why we don't know how well truly committed Christian men are doing. It's because most of the studies haven't made that distinction. Mm-hmm. And so um, to give you another quote from Brad Wilcox, he actually wrote an article on it for Christianity Today. And he said, the most violent husbands in America are Protestant evangelical men who attend church rarely, if at all. Mm-hmm. So this is a challenge for Christian leaders and churches is, you know, how can we support the men who are doing a good job? Let them know, you know, in spite of all the ways they're being attacked and criticized, uh, the, the data is really in their favor. And these are rigorous 
empirical studies. You know, this isn't just some pastor trying to rev you up, you know, with <laughs> encouraging language. You know, this is this is these are scientific facts. And then on the other hand, of course, we have to think, how do we reach out to these nominal men who are claiming the identity of evangelical? By the way, a lot of people say, how come they're actually worse than secular men? Apparently, they take the language of headship and submission. You know, they hang around the Christian world at the fringes enough to pick up that language, but they infuse it with secular meaning of Mm. dominance, entitlement, and control. But they feel permission from the church to do it because of the its religious language headship Mm. submission and so they they take the worst of the secular world and give it sort of a christian veneer and end up in fact behaving worse than secular men so that's quite a challenge for the church how are we going to reach out to them for sure. Uh, but, but I think you just highlighting it in your book and, and pointing this out, it, it does give some direction to churches of how we can begin to, to handle this. Because again, it's um, yeah, it's just something that's kind of been said and it's out there, but but making the distinction, I just think is, is vitally important. And, you know, as we're talking about toxic masculinity, I think of, you know, we're thinking of older grown men, but, but I'm thinking of the effects of younger boys and girls and, and, what are some of the effects of toxic masculinity on, on younger boys as well as, as younger girls? I know you, you talked about education at one point, but have you found things in your, your research that you'd like to point to? Well, but people ask me, of course, what's the solution? And the long-term solution is fathers reconnecting with their sons. I quote a psychiatrist who said, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. Hmm. Um, In America today, 40% of children are living apart from their natural fathers and often don't even see them. It's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. (laughs) So what a thing to be best at, right? Um, Single parenthood. So the trouble, of course, is that fathers are often ridiculed and mocked in the media, right? We We all know that they're painted as, you know, the butt of the joke, you know, the dimwit dad, the doofus dad. And so it's one reason I think that men are less motivated to become fathers because it's not respected anymore. And so long-term we have to say, you know, how can we help fathers be more involved with their sons? And what people don't, a lot of people know it's a problem, but they don't know where it started. And so in my book, I help people to realize it actually started with the industrial revolution. You have to go that far back because before the industrial revolution, Fathers worked alongside their kids all day, right? On the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so fathers were very close to their sons, training them in the adult skills that they would need. And they were much closer to the wives as well. And the uh, ethos for masculinity at the time emphasized their caretaking role, their responsibility. Um, the, the, The concept of authority had a very definite meaning in the colonial era. It didn't mean I, I'm the boss, I get I get to do what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It meant I have responsibility for the common good. That was the language at the time. In other words, you know, I look out I look out for what's good for me, you look out for what's good for you, but who looks out for the common good of the organization or the, the social institution, whether it's marriage, whether it's a family, whether it's a business or a school or whatever, who looks out for the common good? Well, that's the role of authority. The person in authority is supposed to not pursue his own interest, 
but to look out for the common good of the whole. So it was a very caretaking definition of masculinity. How did we lose that? In the Industrial Revolution, well, it took work out of the home. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing it did. And men had to follow their work out of the home. And so for the first time, they weren't working with people that they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's when you see the language change. People began to protest that men were losing that caretaking ethos that they had when they were still at home. They were starting to be egocentric, self-interested, aggressive, selfish ambition, to use a word from the New Testament, Mm -hmm. (laughs) selfish ambition like like Galatians, Um, you know, looking out for number one, uh, greedy and acquisitive. I'm, I'm using the language that was in the literature of the day. People began to protest, and the the they didn't use the word toxic yet, but you see, they were they were saying mm-hmm. our men are, are their their character is changing, and it's and it's not for the better. And so this is the first time you begin to see people protesting that men's behavior was going more more toxic, uh, harmful. They were losing well, and at the same time, of course, the society was secularizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the especially the public realm, people said uh, after the Industrial Revolution, you had factories and businesses and financial institutions and banks and universities and the state. And people began to say, well, this public realm should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant value free. Mm-hmm. You, know, you are not supposed to bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we hear today still. Right. That should mm-hmm. sound familiar. But as a result, men were working, getting a secular education, working in a secular environment. And so they were losing their commitment to biblical ethic um, earlier than women did. For example, men were becoming more secular. So that, too, was undercutting the the biblical ideals for masculinity. Oh, and I was going to say fatherhood. OK, <laughs> we got onto this because of fathers. So this is also where you see people start to say what's happening to our fathers. Hmm. Because when fathers were home all day working with their kids, they had a very close bond. When they had to go to the factories and offices after the Industrial Revolution, they were not with their kids all day. And already in the 19th century, you see people begin to express concern. Hmm. You know, their fathers are not integrated into the family anymore. anymore. They, they're out of touch with their children's needs and interests, they're out of touch with the family dynamics. And that's when you first start to see fathers being portrayed as irrelevant and incompetent. Mm. It goes all the way back to that. So so in order to deal with this, we have to look at the long roots. You know, you can't you can't deal with any social trend effectively unless you ask where did it come from and how did it develop? And the the view of masculinity and of fathers as well goes all the way back to the 19th century. And that, that helps us get a better handle on what we can do about it. Absolutely. Now, that, that, that was fascinating in your book to read that and to just think of um, just how, how fatherhood went together with just kind of your daily life and what you did when you were working in the home and working alongside, and now it became something kind of separate and different. Um, 
you know, Nancy, I have five children, two of them are boys, and I'm just thinking of how I need to prepare them uh, for this culture that they're growing up in. And in some ways, I feel like I need to prepare them to be hated. And of course, as Christians, uh, Christianity, I mean, we are told we're going to be hated by the world. And I'd love for you just to speak to youth workers and parents a minute and just kind of counsel how do we prepare the next generation uh, for this culture that they're growing up in. You know, I did an interview with um, a young couple who has a podcast. Uh, I would, I'm guessing, you know, mid to late twenties. And uh, the uh, what I found most interesting is what the, the young man said. He said there's really a double standard in the church still. Uh, there's a double standard where men are sort of expected that they will be more prone to sin and vice, and pornography and drinking and so on, and that. It's up to women to hold them in check. It's up to women to draw the line, for example, in a dating relationship. And he said, it's very demeaning to men. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the way, I should tell you, I have a 26-year-old. He says the same thing. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he has said the same thing. He said, in Christian circles, there's the assumption that men you know, are, are uh, barely able to hold themselves back. <laughs> that you know, it's they're, they're sort of wild beast under the surface. And... Even that has a history, by the way, that has a history and uh, understanding where it came from can be helpful. So as I mentioned, in the 19th century, society was growing more secular, but it was affecting men first because men were out in the public realm, which was being secularized uh, and which was being made value free. What people still wanted to retain values, <laughs> you know, uh, altruism, sacrifice, love, relationship, religious devotion, well, that was all relegated to the private sphere. And who was it? Who was uh, responsible for cultivating it then? Women were, because women were still in the private sphere. And so for the first time ever in human history, women were said to be morally and spiritually superior to men. Mm-hmm. They were put on that Victorian pedestal, right? <laughs> That's how we sometimes think of it. Um, all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it had been said that men were morally superior. The idea was that the insight between right and wrong is a rational insight. And it was thought that men were more rational and therefore men were thought to be morally stronger. And so, and that, that was all the way up to the 19th century. And then suddenly there was this tremendous turnaround. And because men were growing more secular, people looked to women to be the moral guardians of society. Uh, men were supposed to come home from that dog-eat world, dog-eat-dog <laughs> competitive world of industrialism and commerce, and they were supposed to come home and be reformed and refined you know, by their morally superior wives. And that was kind of the church's coping mechanism. As the church no longer had a strong voice in the public realm, they tried to have a stronger voice in the private realm and primarily through women. The first and second Great Awakenings, for example, which shaped American evangelicalism to a large degree, uh, was mostly, in terms of numbers, there were far more women than women converts than male converts. And most of us don't know that, but mm. at the time, if you, see, if you see, I have lots of pictures in my book <laughs> to help you, <laughs> lots of pictures, because, you know, it's hard to picture the past, sure. right? It seems abstract, so. I have engravings of some of the revivals of the time, and they always 
highlight the you know, women are at the center, women are in the in, at the front, often swooning, you know, ex- expressing their emotions. Um, so we have inherited a kind of notion that women are the ones now who are seen as the people who are supposed to make their marriage work and hold their husbands in check. And if if they if they if they don't uh, fulfill the biblical femininity, they, you know, it's their fault if their husbands get addicted to porn or mm-hmm. if their husbands go off and have an affair because the woman, you know, it's her job to hold him. Uh, so that kind of tension between the sexes that we have today with, um, in a sense, women seen as, as the conscience of men. Um, and, 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 uh, let me give you one more. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I please should do. I should let you break in. <laughs> no, no, no. Please do. Please, please go ahead. Don't. Yeah, I, I want to hear from you. <laughs> um. So in, in the book, this might help. This might help illustrate as well. In the book, I give several stages in the secularizing of the masculine script. You know, the script for men, um, because it happened over time. And one of the most important turning points was the rise of Darwinism when I say that we kind of have this notion of men being, you know, the beast within and need to be held in check, that came, a lot of that came from Darwinism. The Darwinian thinkers said the men who won out in the struggle for existence, the struggle for survival, were going to be men, of course, who were rugged and ruthless and barbarian and brutal and even predatory. And so it gave rise to the notion that men were actually beasts at heart with only a thin veneer of civilization. That was one of their favorite phrases, thin veneer of civilization. Um, This is when books like Tarzan came out, right? Mm. Enormously popular because he he was raised by the apes. And so he still had his animal nature and hadn't been debilitated by civilization. And and there were also books like uh, Jack London's Call of the Wild. He, by the way, he read Darwin as a young man and had what one historian calls a conversion experience Hmm. to radical naturalism, you know, that were just complex machines operating by natural selection and survival of the fittest. And even though he wrote about dogs, they were meant as metaphors for humans. Well, how did that affect the view of masculinity? And clearly, People, the the Darwinian thinkers said things like, well, that means that men are naturally barbarian and predators and savage, and that's their true nature. And again, I want want to point out what a reversal this was, because all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had said we need to keep the animal nature under control by the higher faculties of reason and moral will. And the Darwinian thinkers turned that around and said, oh, no, you know, your true nature is to be the barbarian, to be wild, you know, to be untamed, you know, to find your true nature getting away from civilization and away from your family and get climbing mountains and hunting elk. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then you ask, well, how did women put up with such brutal men? And uh, the, the main popularizer of Darwinism here in the States, by the way, was Herbert Spencer. And he, what he said was, well, women had to develop the ability to please. And it would also help if they learned to hide their resentment at poor treatment. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so this was the message that the secular world is developing. And of course, to some degree, it's going to seep into the church. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I was on a podcast with a Christian psychologist a few days ago, and and she said, "You better believe that's still the message in the church." <laughs> yeah. I, I was a little surprised, but she works mm. with she works with abusive families. Um, mm. That's her specialty, and she said the idea that you need to learn how to hide resentment at poor treatment. You said you better. She she said that's very much still part of the ethos in the church where there where there is when there is actual abuse. Um, women often get that message. So so of course because the the book deals with nominal men who are abusive. I do have two chapters at the end. You may not have gotten to them yet. <laughs> I have <laughs> two chapters on sort of biblical biblical um, teachings on abuse, so that yeah. uh, you know I don't don't leave people just hanging. Sure. talking about the nominal men, but also give some biblical answers. Yeah, no, I, I did see those ahead. I look forward to, to finishing that. Nancy, there, there's so much more to talk about, and I'm, you cover so much in this book. I, w- I want to remind our, our listeners, the book is The War on Toxic Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Um, it releases June 27th, but you can go pre-order it right now. Again, there's a link in the show notes people can check out. Professor Piercy, I'm, I'm always so impressed at how courageous you are to tackle many challenging topics of our day. So thank you so much for your ministry and for taking the time to come on today. Oh, it was a joy talking to you. And I really appreciate the work that you guys do with, with youth. And I, you know, my heart is really with young people. So I really appreciate your work. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without